Well, good evening, everybody. I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science at the University of Sydney and Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney. And we're here tonight in the Utsun Room of the Sydney Opera House, which stands on Benelong Point, as we refer to it, or Dubagali, as it's known to the Gadigal of the Aura Nation. And as is customary with public events in Australia, we begin by acknowledging uh, the people whose ancestral lands on which we stand, and they are, as they are for events out at the University of Sydney, the Gadigal people. Um, all of us at the United States Study Centre are so pleased to be hosting Senator Jeff Flake tonight. The Senator's visit to Australia, accompanied by his wife Cheryl, is a joint venture with our sister centre, the Perth US Asia Centre at the University of Western Australia, with whom we enjoy a terrific partnership. And in this instance, it's led to this magnificent opportunity, bringing the Senator and his wife to Australia. This very interesting moment in US political history. The timing is exquisite, ladies and gentlemen, um, given what's happened in Washington today. And um, when the flakes come to town, um, maybe it rains as well, which is a good thing for, for, Sydney, for Sydney too. And, um, you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> um, Senator Flake, for those of you that don't know, served six terms in the, in the US House of Representatives, most of it representing Arizona's sixth congressional district, which takes in part of metropolitan uh, Phoenix. Uh, Jeff then went up to the US Senate after the resignation uh, retirement of, um, of John Kyle uh, in 2012, where he served alongside a great friend um, of the United States Study Center, the late uh, Senator John McCain, uh, who we had the great uh, privilege of hosting uh, up at the State Library, and, and as it turned out to be one of uh, the Senator's last um, um, international, probably the last international speech he gave. Um, but alongside Senator McCain, uh, for most of um, uh, Jeff's term in the Senate, uh, um, he served uh, a, a six-year term from early 2013. You're seated in the January after the November election year through to early uh, 2019, deciding not to seek re-election in 2018. As a US Senator, Senator Flake served on the Committee on Foreign Relations. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. Chairing its Africa subcommittee, where he passed landmark legislation on wildlife trafficking and democratic governance. Flake was an important and powerful supporter of the normalization of relations with Cuba. And both in the House and the Senate, uh, Jeff was a vocal critic of pork barreling and earmarking, and um, we might say more about that later as well. Um, in October 2017, uh, Senator Flake announced he would not seek re-election, famously telling the Arizona Republic newspaper, there may not be a place for a Republican like me in the current Republican climate or the current Republican Party. And just a few hours later on the floor of the US Senate, and what was hailed as one of the most important speeches uh, of the year, Senator Flake called out President Trump, quote, reckless, outrageous, and undignified behavior. And he went on to say, quote, I have children and grandchildren to answer to, and so, Mr. President, I will not be complicit. That's a remarkable thing for a senator to say about a president from their own party. And then that was a, a shadow of a sign of things to come, rather. The senator's last 12 months in office were especially noteworthy for those of us, like at the US Study Center, that pay close attention to US politics, and I guess most of you in this room as well. Uh, from this distance, the senator seemed seemingly liberated 
from facing a primary contest and re-election, speaking his mind freely and critically about Trump, the Republican Party, and the direction of the United States. Senator Flake developed that perspective more fully in his book, Conscience of a Conservative, a Rejection of Destructive Politics and a Return to Principle. Tonight, we have the great privilege of hearing from Senator Flake on, as I said earlier, was a momentous day in Washington. The House finally, formally, transmitted articles of impeachment to the Senate. And down the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, the United States and China inked a trade deal cheered by financial markets around the world. There's plenty going on over there, um, which we'll get into. Um, so the running order here, um, the Senator will deliver some remarks from the podium um, uh, before joining me for some Q&A, and then we will indeed open it up to this um, wonderful audience we've built. Um, um, uh, it is before Australia Day in Sydney, uh, and thank you so much for turning out. This, um, uh, uh, our close friends and family of the centre. We're so delighted to see so many of you here uh, during what is typically the holiday season uh, in Australia. So thank you in advance for coming. Senator Flake and Cheryl, welcome to Australia. Senator, the podium's yours. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. It is a pleasure to be here. I even enjoy the rain. I know you do too. <laughs> I grew up on a dry, dusty ranch in Arizona. One of my dad's favorite sayings, my dad, an old rancher, said, when Noah got his, we got half an inch. <laughs> and so no amount of rain was enough on, that, that, on the F-bar. And, and certainly uh, you feel that way here in Australia now. And so we're, we're glad, even though part of our time is meant for uh, recreating here, Still glad to see the rain, and we appreciate this invitation so much. It's, it's nice to be here. I, as mentioned, uh, I did grow up in the town of Snowflake, Arizona, a town whose origins I share with Gordon Flake, who was the head of the uh, Perth U.S. Asia Center. But I was the fifth of 11 children. I have 69 first cousins on my father's side alone. I know what you're thinking, and yes, that is how I got elected. <laughs> Senator McCain used to always joke. He said that uh, in Congress, he said, now our popularity is down to, to uh, paid staff and blood relatives. He said, I kept telling him, hey, that's a pretty good base for me still. <laughs> you may need to worry, but I'm okay. But uh, I know that... Uh, that Senator McCain visited here. And uh, I was referred to as, for six years in the Senate, as the other senator from Arizona, <laughs> which was a moniker that I uh, grew to love and, and accept. But sometimes it uh, wasn't quite so fun. I, I got on a plane uh, after one week in Washington, like I almost always did, and Senator McCain almost always did. We both got on the plane. He went and sat in 13D or whatever. I went back a few rows and 18F. And, and uh, the woman I was sitting next to was all excited. And I thought, well, she must recognize me. And so I sat down by her and uh, she looked over and she said, Senator McCain is on the flight. <laughs> I said, yeah, he's up, uh, up there a few rows. And she said, have you ever flown with him before? <laughs> I said, once or twice. And, uh, 
nothing. She didn't, didn't get it. Uh, she said, do you fly to Washington often? And I said, about as often as John McCain. <laughs> Still nothing. <laughs> and then she said, it was the week of the, uh, the golf event, the Phoenix Open. She said, are you a golfer? <laughs> I said, no, but thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, but then somebody sitting right in front of us leaned back and he said, hey, lady, he's the other senator from Arizona. <laughs> so I, I did get awfully used to that. But when Senator McCain was here uh, just uh, less than three years ago, he laid out the following rationale for U.S.-Australia, for our relationship. He said, quote, the animating purpose of our alliance is that we are free societies founded by immigrants and pioneers who put our, our faith in the rule of law and who believe that our destinies are inseparable from the character of the broader world order. He continued, we believe that when the strong trample the rights and independence of the weak with impunity, then our liberty and our sovereignty are at risk. We believe that when all people cannot sail the seas and fly the skies and engage in commerce freely, then our prosperity will suffer. He concluded, we believe that when the balance of power in the world favors those bent on injustice and aggression and conquest, then the peace we cherish will not last. These are values that time does not diminish. These are ideas that truly are worth the fighting for. Favorite McCain saying. This is why we are allies, and this is why we must remain so. I couldn't have said it better, and those words still ring true. Now, I'm sure that in the discussion with Simon, uh, Later, we'll address the Senate impeachment trial and the impact on this year's elections. I'm sure we'll talk about U.S. foreign policy and its impact on the United States and Australia. So before we get to that discussion, I wanted to say a few words about the need for civil and respectful discourse, the imperative to recognize that those who disagree with us might be our political opponents but they are not our enemies. You might be thinking this is not the advice that you need to hear from America right now. <laughs> I understand that sentiment. I would simply offer, as Senator McCain articulated so well nearly three years ago, Arizona is much bigger than the actions of any one individual. In his first inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln implored his countrymen to heed the better angels of their nature. I've always loved the prose and poetry of Abraham Lincoln's speeches. This earnest supplication came when our nation was at war with itself. We have no such calamitous conflict today, gratefully, but perhaps at no time since the war between the states has our nation seemed so divided. In Washington, at least, where we talk endlessly of red states and blue states as if they were competing armies, it seems that the better angels of our nature have been sidelined for good. Such enmity in politics seems to have affected politics globally as well. In today's environment, it's difficult to turn on the television or the, listen to the radio or look at newspapers or social media without being alarmed by the vitriol and the cruelty that accompanies nearly every discussion of politics. I hope that we are still alarmed. I hope that we haven't accepted as normal the current state of politics. 
but I fear that such acceptance comes closer by the day. We might ask ourselves, how has it come to this? Is it really this bad? A few examples are in order from my time in office. In January of 2011, a few days after my Democratic colleague, Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, uh, was shot and gravely wounded while greeting constituents at an event, we in the Arizona delegation left an empty seat for her at that year's State of the Union address. We made a point to sit together in solidarity rather than divide along party lines as the rest of the chamber typically does at the State of the Union address. One year later, Gabby, who was still working very hard to rehabilitate from her grievous injury, was returning to Congress, if only to resign the next day. I sat next to her on the Democratic side of the House chamber during the State of the Union address. During President Obama's applause lines, she wanted to stand up with the rest of her colleagues, but she was unable to do so on her own, so I helped her up. That left me, a lone Republican, <laughs> among a sea of cheering Democrats. I immediately started receiving furious text messages and emails from partisans who wanted to know why I stood. Did I agree with President Obama? They didn't see a humane gesture. They saw someone consorting with the enemy. Much the same happened during the 2016 presidential campaign when Senator Tim Kaine was named as Hillary Clinton's running mate. I, Tim and I had entered the Senate together. We disagreed often, but I knew him to be hardworking, smart, and patriotic. I knew that his son, Nat, was serving honorably in the Marines. By way of congratulating Tim on being named to the Democratic ticket, I tweeted playfully, now I have to, hate, now I have to count the ways I hate Tim Kaine, but I'm drawing a blank. He's a good man and a good friend. Congratulations. Once again, unhinged, irrational fury from my side of the aisle. At a political gathering not long afterwards in Arizona, I received a scolding from a diehard Republican who said that I was aiding and abetting the enemy. If you can't say anything bad, don't say anything. <laughs> he stopped himself before reversing the advice I'm sure his mother had always given him. Such is the conditioned response of a shattered politics. Then on a beautiful June morning just two years ago, I was standing between home plate and first base on a baseball field in Alexandria, Virginia. I had already fielded balls in center field and was just finished with my batting practice minutes earlier and waiting for the last Republican to finish his so I could uh, go back to the Capitol for the more mundane job of legislating. And a shot rang out. We were confused. We didn't know exactly where it was coming from or what it was. We looked at each other for a few seconds until there was a volley of gunfire. And our third baseman yelled, shooter, shooter. The next 10 minutes were an intense blur as the gunman fired nearly 100 rounds at members of Congress and staff on the field. I remember running and diving into the dugout, laying as flat as I could while I fashioned a belt as a tourniquet on the leg of an injured staffer while still more gunfire raged overhead and around us. 
when the shooting stopped, I ran to the field and used my batting glove to plug up the hole in Steve Scalise's left hip. While we waited for the first responders, and then I used Steve's phone to call his wife to make sure that she didn't hear her husband had been shot on the news. The most enduring memory I have of that morning came as I turned as the first volley of gunfire rang out and I watched bullets dislodge pieces of gravel in front of me. I remember thinking to myself as time seemed to stand still for an eternity, why, why us? How could anyone look at a bunch of middle-aged men playing baseball, trying to play baseball, and see the enemy? The gunman who died during the incident had been stirred to anger by the polemics of social media and cable news. Among his belongings was found a piece of paper with a list of Republican targets. Just a few months ago, two individuals who made death threats against Cheryl and me were sentenced. One of these men, the same person who sent pipe bombs to a number of media personalities and Democrats, tweeted an aerial photo of our home in Arizona with a caption reading, Senator Flake, there are a lot of entrances. I'll see you soon. Fortunately, he was apprehended. Another individual who's not been apprehended sent text messages to Cheryl with links to beheading videos. Included in these texts were the addresses of each of our children. The level of hate and vitriol that many Democrats feel for Republicans and many Republicans feel for Democrats is unhealthy not only for Democrats and Republicans, but for the country as a whole and for the world who watches it. In this political climate, elected officials have very little incentive to deliberate, let alone work together for the common good. Every political instinct a, polit a politician in Washington possesses in this environment encourages him or her to rush to the safety of the tribe, to state their position, and to stay there. To even suggest for a moment that a hearing you might be chairing might inform your vote is to invite criticism from all sides. To admit that you have an open mind when an investigation is occurring might have you trending on Twitter and not in a good way, or it might guarantee that you have a primary opponent in the next election. In this political climate, politicians make the calculation. Do I want to anger both sides or just one? If I show no signs of willingness to consider evidence or listen to testimony, even the, opponent, even the opponents, uh, opponents on the other side won't hold it against me because they would never think I was gettable. This is largely where we are in the United States right now politically. In this climate, there is very little currency for thoughtful deliberation or for negotiation. So as I see it, the only real alternative we have to getting along with each other is to be alone, completely alone. Let me tell you, I've tested that alternative, and it's no picnic. Several years ago, or I should back up all of my life, I have dreamed this strange dream of uh, being marooned on a deserted island. I wanted to know if I could survive. I talked about this so much, my wife Cheryl, finally, after hearing it for 25 years, 10 years ago, said, if this is your midlife crisis, 
maroon yourself already. <laughs> Get it over with. <laughs> so I clicked on Google Earth and located a bunch of small uninhabited islands in the Marshall Islands in the Pacific, about halfway between here and Hawaii. I, uh, I uh, flew to Hawaii, then to Majuro, then to Kwanjalein, and had a fishing boat take me the rest of the way and drop me off with very little, uh, very few tools and no food or water. Just to give you an idea of how alone I was, after a few days on the island, I picked up a small hermit crab that had wandered through my camp and kept doing so. I wondered, is this the same one? Is he doing laps? Or are there a lot of them? So I picked up a Sharpie marker that somehow made it into my meager survival kit and put a number one on his shell and put him down. Waited a while, another one came by, number two on his shell. By the end of the week, I had 126 numbered friends. I still miss number 72. <laughs> I shared coconut scraps with him often. Number 44 pinched my toe. I don't miss that one. But uh, there's a saying that no man is an island, and that I can confirm. It was a long, hungry week. Whenever I find it difficult to be civil or decent to those around me, or when I'm inclined to ignore the better angels of my nature, I think back on the lonely alternative. There is no joy in being alone. We have to work together. Just a side note, in a bipartisan gesture a few years ago during a congressional break, uh, New Mexico's Democratic Senator Martin Heinrich, uh, who felt the same way about our drift into partisanship, we decided to go back to the Marshall Islands and to prove that Republicans and Democrats can get along. We uh, made this move and I informed the Discovery Channel that we were gonna do this, thought that they might like some of the GoPro footage afterwards. They said, no, we wanna come film. And so they did. You can still get it on Amazon for $2.99, by the way. <laughs> they called it Rival Survival. And they gave us basically one tool between ourselves, no food, no water, just a machete between us. Not the smartest <laughs> move given the political environment, but we did survive. We did work together. And when we came home, we went kind of on the, the circuit to talk about the experience. And Stephen Colbert did the best job summing it up. He ran a clip of us spearing fish, trying to survive. And he said, Jeff Flake and Martin Heinrich proved once and for all Republicans and Democrats can get along when death is the only option. <laughs> So for what it's worth, um, it's been proven empirically. But the temptation to return verbal fire after we've been insulted is sometimes overwhelming. Earlier this year, uh, newly, uh, I'm sorry, early last year, a newly elected Democrat uh, in the House of Representatives used very vulgar language to talk about how the president needed to be impeached. Since I had been awfully critical of the president's use of similar language, for the past two years, I thought I should respond, so I tweeted out the following. There should be no place in politics for language like this. Pointing out that the president also speaks crudely should be no excuse. We can do better. Over the next two days, more than 30,000 people commented on that post. Not retweeted or forwarded, they commented. <laughs> That's what you call being ratioed with, that the kids recognize today. Um, 
But the, there was these, obviously, comments were all over the map, but the overwhelming sentiment was, if the president speaks this way, then so must we. We have to ask ourselves, where does this escalation lead? What kind of example do we set for our friends, for our children and grandchildren? As elected officials, how do we govern it all if we treat each other this way? Now, by emphasizing that we should treat each other with courtesy and respect, I'm by no means suggesting that we be passive in our beliefs or our advocacy. Quite the opposite. Stand and be counted. Stand up for what you believe. I'm a conservative Republican. I hope the sort of kind of throwback from the days when those words actually meant something before the collapse of our politics into the rank tribalism that we currently endure. The genius of our legislative system, yours and ours, is that they are designed to be difficult in order to force compromise. And when we honor the system and seek to govern in good faith, the system works. Now, populism is alluring. It's easy to be swept up in the crowd, particularly when that crowd is your political party and your political identity. But to be serious about policy and politics is to challenge political assumptions regularly, even your own, especially your own. Recognize the good in your opponents. Apologize every now and then. Admit to mistakes. Forgive and ask for forgiveness. And if you find yourselves in a herd or succumbing to the herd mentality, crane your neck. Look back there and check out your brand. Ask yourself if it really suits you. From personal experience, I can say it's never too late to leave the herd. When you peel off from the herd, your equilibrium returns. Food tastes better. You sleep well. Your mind is your own again. You cease being captive to some very, very bad impulses and even worse ideas. It can strain relationships, to be sure. It can leave you eating alone in the Senate dining room every now and then, but that's okay. Disagreements with the president and others in the Republican Party have left some of us wandering in the political wilderness, and that is where your invitation reached me. This wilderness suits me fine for now. But it is my hope and my belief that this fever of rancor and discord will ultimately break. The historian John Meacham, in his splendid book, The Soul of America, reassures that history shows us that, quote, we are frequently vulnerable to fear, bitterness, and strife. The good news, he says, is that we have come through such darkness before. We will return to ourselves once again, and the sooner the better. In politics and in this interconnected world, we must be willing to respect each other in an atmosphere of shared facts, shared value, and in good faith. As Senator McCain said, and I will repeat, bear with us. This is a strong relationship. It is needed by both of us. Bear with us. Abraham Lincoln said it best, I think, and I'll close where I began with his plea. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break the bonds of affection. 
the mystic chords of memory will swell again when touched, as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. Thank you for having me here today. It's been an honor. Terrific remarks. Thank you so much for that. And um, thank you. That was um, chilling uh, hearing you uh, quote uh, John McCain back to us. That was a remarkable evening. And thank you for. It was a heck of a speech he gave. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, look, I want to start. You, you, you outlined kind of what happened to you to some extent. Um, do you have a theory? of how American politics got to this place, whereas you were describing a politician has a choice to make mm -hmm. about upsetting one constituency or two constituencies, because it wasn't always this way. Mm -hmm. And I can remember a senator like John Bro uh, from Louisiana, right. who could get a deal done across the aisle pretty easily. I can remember, um, I can remember things like NAFTA passing back in the 90s, we would have Senator McCain and Senator Biden right. working together. Um, how did we get from that, which is in living memory, uh, yeah. and in, you know, not that long ago, to, to, where, to the world you described? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it hasn't been that long ago. I've been in for the last 18 years, and I can point to many examples of it. Um, it began deteriorating. One thing, one thing you can point to, I think. Uh, is uh, the election of 2000, the disputed election, the hanging chads in Florida, right. uh, when a lot of people didn't accept uh, George W. Bush as a legitimate president. And in the Senate, uh, the Senate had always, always unfailingly, with the president's executive uh, agenda, um, nominees, you know, cabinet officials, others, for whom the Senate <coughs> must uh, you know, have advice and consent, it was always a courtesy that no matter how controversial the nominee was, Judge Bork, um, Clarence Thomas, and those were controversial, it would have taken one senator to stand up and say, uh, I would require a you know, cloture vote and so 60 votes. No one ever did. You just didn't do that until a group of people felt this is an illegitimate president, therefore we can kind of change the rules. And they started at that time to say, all right, the president shouldn't get his nominees and change the rules and change behavior. That was one item, but it, it mm -hmm. used to be the case that there was value in going back to your constituents and saying, I worked on this legislation. Legislation is almost always passed, you know, with a bipartisan right. way. Right. Now, talking about that gets you a primary. Right. Um, and, uh, and there's just very little currency in that and, and very little, uh, you know, very little currency for deliberation at all. So we've, we've gotten there um, over the past 20 years. It's been a steady decline, if you will. But even not long ago, like uh, 2008, with the big financial crisis that we've mm -hmm, had, mm -hmm. and that was a doozy uh, to, for the U.S. Congress to have to come together and, and vote on an ugly, ugly bill to right. bail out the banks, <laughs> which nobody wanted to do. Uh, but they saw that the need that that had to be done and you had two you know, presidential candidates, John McCain and Barack Obama, actually 
suspend their campaigns, go back to Washington and implore their colleagues to vote for this bad, ugly bill. Uh, the notion of that kind of thing happening right now is pretty remote. And so I hope we don't have a massive crisis like that that requires the Congress to come together, although somebody might argue we're in it right now. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing. I mean, the, 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 the joke that Colbert told about about um, Democrats and Republicans can come together only when death is the only alternative. There's a serious sting in the tail to that, in that is this partisan rancor and division something that a wealth, wealthy, secure country, an indulgence that can afford to play a ga this game with itself when it really doesn't face a big existential threat and that if one were to come along, you know, we would see <laughs> yeah. I don't want to test that proposition. No, no, right now. But, but yes, but that, right. that is, I mean, uh, some of the things that we desperately need to come together and face in our situation is our debt and deficit. Right. I mean, trillion dollar deficits in times like these, um, where we're basically not saving any tools for when we really yeah, right. do have right. a, a right. crisis. Um, you know, that ought to bring us together. Yeah. But We've gone so long like this that we think we can go forever. And, uh, and you know, so yes, I, I hope that that's the case, but, but I wouldn't want to test it right now. Um, speaking of debt and deficit, I was going to get to that later, but since you mentioned it, um, Republicans don't talk about that. At, <laughs> Not at, at all. Right? I no, mean, no so, that, that so you, you would be hard-pressed to find one campaign anywhere in the country with one Republican mentioning that. Because to bring it up, if they're an incumbent, they would be, you know, having to defend a record uh, right. uh, that, that you wouldn't want to defend. Right. And second, if you're a challenger, you realize that nobody's talking about this and there's no, exactly. no traction here. Right. Um, so what happened <laughs> to the Republican Party that the party of, you know, railing against death and deficit, and in particular, I mean, I think this has got particular personal resonance for you, you know, I, I call it desert state conservatism. You know, Barry Goldwater, you and John railing against uh, earmarks and, 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 and pork barreling. What happened to that species of, of republicanism? Mm -hmm. Well, it's pretty much gone now. I mean, the, the, the principles that Barry Goldwater, you know, uh, espoused and what has animated the modern republican party, kind of the response to the Great Society and uh, the New Deal, um, pushing back against progressivism mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. big government. Uh, that's just nowhere to be seen. And that's been kind of a, a limit, uh, limited constituency all the time. The Republican sure. Party has always reached for broader things, but, uh, but we've seen more recently reaching way out of the mainstream. If you remember, you know, back in uh, the early 60s, Barry Goldwater and William F. Buckley, who was kind of the intellectual yep. head of the party, yep. um, you know, pretty much divorced the John Birch movement of conspiracy theorists right. who believed that Eisenhower was a closet communist and fluoride in the water was a government form of mind control. Uh, they, they said at that time that they had to remove that emblem of irresponsibility from the party. Now that kind of emblem of irresponsibility is in the White House. And uh, this, this, this belief in conspiracy theories and, and whatnot, it's, it's gone more mainstream uh, Republican or conservative, I guess it will. Has, it, has that older species of conservatism 
just gone quiet for a while while Trump has hijacked the party? Or, and after Trump, it, it's still alive intellectually and, and, and will find political voice again? I do. I, I think a lot of people have some explaining to do uh, in terms <laughs> of uh, legislation proposed or, or voted on. But I, I do still think it's there, partly because we'll have no choice. We're going to face these big issues, and there's got to be somebody arguing this way, and, and there will be a constituency for it. Um, but, you know, you have to have some event that focuses the party in the mind. And in my view, uh, that most often comes with a big election loss. And, and when we haven't suffered that as a Republican Party for a while, some people will tend to think, oh, we can keep skating on. But anger and resentment and populist angst are not a governing philosophy. Uh, it only goes so far. You can gin up the uh, you know the electorate for an election here or there, but it you know it runs out. Well, I, I did want to get to that as well. <laughs> this is perfect. Um, um, is populism, at least the way it's been brought about, or the, the version of it that Trump, this is a, a one-trick play, or maybe a two-trick yeah. play, uh, a device to shore up the electoral value, electoral standing of a party the Republican right. Party, that is otherwise facing some big structural issues, demographics in the United States going against it, um, state on, on it, like the way a glacier rolls downhill, but state after state starting to become more blue and in some cases right. crossing over. Um, and so this appeal to anger and to emotion and to simplistic solutions, you know, quote unquote, um, is, is just this device to just wring out what's left there yeah, in that yeah. electorate and, and, and address what is otherwise a, a bit of a structural, more than a bit, a structural disadvantage for the party. Yeah. Well, we, we, we thought, I mean, we faced this when Mitt Romney uh, lost the election in 2012. The Republicans came together and said, uh, let's perform an autopsy, basically, on our, our philosophy, our, where we are, and we concluded we have to appeal to a broader electorate. Mm -hmm. you know, just looking at demographics mm -hmm. and uh, minorities making up a larger share when you have a, uh, a message that doesn't seem uh, you know, aware of that, it's not gonna play. But then Trump came along and we thought we could wring one more yeah, right. out of this. And, 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 and sometimes it works, right. but it will only work in the short term. And I like to look at, uh, I don't like to look at it because I think it <laughs> spells kind of the future, but uh, it's the best explanation is, is California in the 1990s with Pete Wilson, the governor, right. latching on to a, a very kind of anti-immigrant uh, proposition, initiative, uh, Prop 187, yep. which did manage to excite the base and draw people out. But uh, in the last quarter century, uh, only Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> has been elected as a Republican statewide, it's statewide and then statewide. switched parties. Yep. And it'll likely be a generation before a Republican is elected statewide in California. And partly because that the, the, the rhetoric and tone and tenor of that debate in 1990 so turned off one minority groups, uh, suburban women, um, and others to the party that they just, and now we have a, a, an added one, uh, the Republican Party's inability to deal with climate change and to recognize the threat that it is and deal with it in a serious way. It doesn't have to be the way that, you know, the Green New Deal, uh, but, but you have to deal with it in a serious way uh, because millennials are, are simply saying, we don't want any part of a party that doesn't recognize this. Right. So that's an added problem yep. we have. 
So yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very concerned at where we are, and I hope that, uh, that, that enough Republicans are still around to, to build on <laughs> after this, but I think it would, the, the only option we have is for a, an election loss that focuses the mind. Right, and might one of them be Jeff Flake? <laughs> uh, the election loss, I, no, I, 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 <laughs> I didn't well, mean I, that. No. Um, <laughs> um, have to talk to the lady in the front row here about that. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I, 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 I've not sworn off uh, politics, uh, but it's tough to see a place in a party like this for a well, as you say. Republican like me. But I do think if the president is reelected, we are going to see some kind of realignment. I think if the president is reelected, it will be because, and only because, the Democrats nominate somebody on the far left. Right. That means there will be a huge swath of Democrats looking for an alternative, as well as a huge swath of Republicans who cannot take the Trump brand of politics for another uh, four years. And you already have a significant group of independents. Now, in Arizona, about a third of the electorate right. is registered independent. Now, they don't vote in the same propensity, they aren't as motivated, but they still represent a group that when you add some Democrats, some Republicans, you could see, and, and I predict that if the president is reelected, and this is the one little silver lining I can see, is that uh, you will likely see some states like Arizona develop a tradition, a quick one, to elect independents to wow. the Senate, and to uh, the governorship, statewide office, and other states as well. And that would be a, an extremely healthy thing for the Senate uh, in particular to create a, a bit of a power center away from the Republican leadership and the House leadership. You can still you know, caucus with the Republicans or Democrats, but if you're more truly independent of the party structure, um, then, uh, and, and I think there's going to be a far bigger constituency if the president is reelected, yeah. then, then that's one realignment, frankly, that I think would be, it may not be optimal, you know, if you look back at the way our two-party system used to work, right. but more optimal than what we have now. Right. Um, since we're talking 2020, the, the possibility of President Trump being reelected, let's just get that out of the way. Um, what odds would you put on it? What, what's, your, what's your sense of it? Now, I still think it's the Democrats uh, to lose. Uh, when you look at the states where this will be decided, uh, the president is less popular than he was uh, when he won uh, considerably. And when you look at the, if you use the midterm elections as a proxy, you have a lot more excited Democrats than Republicans. Uh, Democrats cast in the midterm elections uh, nine million more votes nationwide than Republicans. Now, some will say, well, that's because the president wasn't on the ballot. Mm -hmm. But some will say, well, if the president is on the ballot, that's even more motivating for Democrats to get out. I, I happen to subscribe to that theory. Okay. Uh, and, and so if you look at the states where this will again be decided, um, unless Bernie Sanders is on the ticket, um, or the ticket, or uh, probably Elizabeth Warren. Warren. And then I think, I think Bernie Sanders guarantees a Trump victory. I think Elizabeth Warren almost guarantees it. Uh, but the others, um, I think it's the Democrats to lose. Right. Um, how's Arizona um, trending? Um, I talked about desert state conservatism, but the mountain time zone states have been fascinating. Nevada, um, you know, um, Obama carrying the state. 
Um, but your own home state um, right. and the demographic change there. You could say a little bit about that if you Yeah, if you and it's, uh, people will always look at, well, it's, you know, the Hispanic population is growing, mm -hmm. and it is. Mm -hmm. That's about 33%, about a third of mm -hmm. the state uh, mm -hmm. identifies as Hispanic, but it's only 17% of the registered voters. Right. Yeah. So it, it tends to be younger um, and uh, sometimes not as politically active. But it's still significant. But that's not the only shift. A lot of Californians are yeah. moving to Arizona. <laughs> and that's uh, like my wife, gratefully. <laughs> and uh, um, and that, that moves a right. significant number as well. Right now, the, the, the reality in Arizona, the president won Arizona, but, but not by much. Yeah. Yeah. And he has his own brand, but somebody trying to be like Trump uh, will lose statewide, and we saw that in droves in the last uh, two elections, right. that those trying to imitate him or those who latch on to him. Right. For example, um, it, the, the seat that I vacated, uh, we had a, a candidate who was traditionally, had served in the House and was a more moderate member that uh, seemed perfectly poised for a statewide race, but she felt that she had to, in order to win the primary, <laughs> Uh, become, right. for lack of a better term, very Trumpy, right. and 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 she lost uh, the election in the primary uh, by sixty thousand votes, and now she's up again. She's oh, she is now as having been appointed to that seat to fill the rest of John McCain's seat. She'll be up, and I suppose she'll suffer the same fate right. unless she finds a way to distance herself from the president. But if she realizes right now, if she does that, she might get a primary, right. and and that applies to most of my former colleagues in the Senate, uh, there is no love for the president or his policies among my colleagues. When you get to the Senate, you aspire to do more than just defend the president's tweets and to be caught up in all of what chaos this is. You want to legislate. You want to deliberate. But each of them knows that uh, with one phone call, the president can generate a primary opponent well, that will likely take you out, and, right. and that's that's sobering. Let's talk about the Senate, um, because something interesting is going to happen in the U.S. Senate next week. Um, so, the, as I said, uh, the articles of impeachment have, have gone over. Um, um, what's your sense of um, how the trial will, will play? There's a few important votes to be right. had. For those of you that don't know, um, the Senate is both judge and jury, the Chief Justice presides, but um, votes about who can be brought forward to give evidence uh, are, a, are a majority vote uh, of, of the Senate before, before they get started. And there's a lot of talk about, has McConnell got the votes to say, stop testimony from right. Bolton? Just wondering some prognostication from you on how you see the trial itself going before yeah. we get to the outcome. Well, first, let me, let me just have a disclaimer on where I am on this. Um, I, I want to see the president removed from office by the voters, not the Senate. I don't want to get in a cycle of you know, trying to remove presidents between elections. I've seen kind of the damage that sort of being in this cycle when George W. Bush was a controversial you know, winner of that election. Mm -hmm. You had people in the Senate act in a way that was very detrimental to the institution by saying, you know, we can't consider him legitimate. And that's why I just bristle at any notion. Uh, when Hillary Clinton called the president illegitimate the other day, you just don't do that. Don't do that. He, you may want to remove him. 
I don't want him reelected. <laughs> I won't vote for him, but he is our legitimate president. And, and so in, in terms of where uh, this goes, my, my only beef is, or my big beef is that Republicans in the Senate, I hope and pray that they don't take the position that Republicans in the House took, that although this, you know, if they can take a, a, a justifiable, of, you know, a position saying that these offenses do not rise to the level uh, that we should require removing somebody from office, but that was not a perfect call, and the president, <laughs> and the president was wrong. Right. And, and he ought to be disciplined for it, and hopefully disciplined by the voters. Um, that's what I hope Republicans at least will say. Um, and I, I admire Democrats who say that this is our constitutional duty and we, we're forced to do this. I, I wish Nancy Pelosi would have followed her, you know, her inner self <laughs> all the way through saying this is not the thing to do, but she received a lot of pressure oh, from yeah. her base. Yeah. And so when it, it, it's now at the Senate uh, they, they did resist gratefully. There were enough Republicans to say that we can't and shouldn't dismiss this. Uh, that is right. Uh, but I, I question whether or not, I don't, if I had to guess, I would say there won't be the votes to compel witnesses. Um, partly because so Rand Paul came out yesterday saying that if uh, any Republican moves to, to compel a witness that the Democrats want, then he will move to compel a witness the Republicans want, like Hunter Biden or one of the others. And it, be, it puts Republicans in a very uh, difficult uh, position and Democrats in a difficult position. So if knowing the, <laughs> my colleagues and the, the institution and kind of the pressures, that's where I would guess it will come out, but it will rely on just a few people. Um, you know, Mitt Romney and uh, Lamar Alexander and, and a few that are up in, in purple states that uh, respond a little Collins, more. So, God, no. yeah. so if I had to guess, we'll be done, you know, two weeks after it started, and uh, there will be an acquittal. And I think that the president will take some uh, victory out of that and some momentum out of that, as he did after the end, just the way he perceived um, or portrayed the Mueller report. Nobody... Uh, having right. read the Mueller report, <laughs> should claim any vindication after that. But the president, I think, was politically successful in doing so, and I, I think he'll do the same here. I don't think that that's enough to put him over the edge in the election, over the top, uh, as long as the Democrats nominate somebody in the mainstream. Sure. Um, so if... if, if why do you think Pelosi held on to the articles for as long as she did? Um, I, when you, as soon as the articles go, you're out. <laughs> you're out of the picture. And uh, one, I think there, was, there, there were a number of Democrats who rightly uh, questioned you know, the, the, the quick move, the move to get it done before Christmas, because I, I think that prohibited them from getting testimony that they should have received or received information that still will come out. This, mm -hmm. this was not ripe, mm -hmm. and, uh, and they wanted to wait for that. And there was some success, I guess you'd say, in that because there have been a few pieces of information that might help that probably won't put anything over the top. Um, and then, I, so I think that was it, some of it, just waiting and hoping that something else would come. 
Uh, but then mostly, I think it was motivated by as soon as you send it, you're out of the picture. And this put them still in the picture for a Long while. Cards before yep. you do yourself out. Um, onto the substance of the matter, though, Pelosi said, what is it with this president that all roads seem to lead to Vladimir Putin? What's your view on that? <laughs> like the, between this, the election interference and, and, you know, she seems to have a point. <laughs> and My feeling always during the campaign uh, when these things, and even after the campaign, uh, during the transition period when some of these allegations first started coming out, that the campaign, you know, colluded or coordinated with the Russians. My feeling was that campaign was far too disorganized, chaotic, inept uh, to coordinate with anybody. Um, and I, I just, uh, I, and the president has some strange fascination and affinity with Vladimir Putin, but he does with virtually every strong man around the globe. Um, I don't think uh, that there's something that specific or that they have compromise or something on him. I just, uh, I don't believe that. But I, I do think that the president uh, uh, certainly is far too dismissive of uh, Russian efforts to interfere in our elections. And I think that that puts uh, our system and democracy in danger. Um, but, but so does his, like I said, fascination with uh, strong men everywhere uh, and, and the type of foreign policy that, that flows from that. And how does that conversation work? You said privately, a lot of your former Senate colleagues are not fans at all. Sure. But that side of Trump, um, and I sometimes wonder about Lindsey Graham, who was close to John McCain, and, and you know where the hell that guy is from time to time. Like, you know, as you heard me saying earlier, um, I have this theory that about once every three weeks, John McCain comes to Lindsey Graham in his sleep and then for three hours the next morning, we get this, the old version of, of Lindsey Graham. And then by lunchtime, it's gone. And he's thinking about his, his, his electorate back, back in his home state and, and all the, you know, the, you know, the pressures that you were alluding to. And, but I'm just, I mean, I know, right? We know from their, their record and, and their voting history, um, you know, frankly, how fiercely patriotic and loyal and concerned about national security, so many of the Senate, and you go there and you meet their staff, and you know, these are great Americans uh, when it comes to that set of issues. And then it seems in public so often, uh, they, they, why can't the United States stand up and defend its own election, why, you know, uh, forcefully and, and, and boldly? That's, I mean, with, with Lindsay, I'm, you know, a good friend of Lindsay. I, I, uh, I appreciate when he does <laughs> hear that ghost or, or, uh, or whatever it is. Um, but and, and and a lot of my colleagues will feel that same way as well. And everybody has wants to at least have some issue on which they disagree with the president, so that they can go home and say, I don't agree on everything. Right. And it's usually a foreign policy issue that you know is safe enough that the president won't. Uh, calling Jen up a, a primary opponent for you, or that might be fleeting anyway as right. some opposition. Right. But, but I can tell you, the, and, and, and some will make the argument uh, and justification that if I'm not here, it will be a complete 
Trump sycophant, you know, or, or somebody who agrees with everything. And, and uh, I, I understand that. Um, in my case, uh, I, I looked at it, and every politician, when you're looking to re-election, you, you look out there, you trim your sails here, you, you, know, you, you don't talk about this as much among this audience. It's politics. I understand that. In my case, I looked at it, and I had opposed the president in the first election, knew I couldn't support him in the second one. I had hoped that my constituents in Arizona, in the tradition of Arizona, right. would want a, a, you know, an independent-minded yep. uh, senator who would uh, say, I, you know, I'll stand, I'll vote with the president's uh, you know, philosophy when I think it's right, but oppose it. But it was clear um, about halfway into my first year with the president that, my, uh, that the Republican primary voters in Arizona that you need to get through uh, wanted somebody who was all in, right. and that I would be required to take positions that I couldn't take on the policy side, defend behavior, condone behavior on the president's behavior that I couldn't condone. And I knew in the end what really I could not see is standing on a campaign stage with the president right. when people shouted, lock her up, or send them back, and have to laugh along, or just look at the floor, or be okay when the president ridiculed my colleagues or demeaned minorities and to have been all right with that. And I couldn't do it. Right. I just couldn't do it. And, but, but, uh, <laughs> but I, under, I understand and I, I, I hope, I look at my colleagues and I, I, we're gonna need to rely on many of them who have swallowed pretty hard um, you know, when, when, when we want to get back, when we need to take the, the party back and, uh, and go forward. So uh, we'll do the best we can. So why aren't there more Jeff Flakes? Why aren't there more people like that in the Republican Party in the Senate um, taking that stand, imagining that moment of being on stage and saying, That's, I can't do it? Because they see me here with you today rather than sitting in the Senate waiting for impeachment. And, uh, uh, Re-election is a is a strong poll, strong poll. Um, it is, and uh, I mean, particularly when you've done what you've done to get to the Senate. Uh, that is the world's most exclusive club. Uh, it's a heady experience. It's a great thing. I, I would have liked to have served another term, uh, but uh, but not at that cost. Does your faith play a role in that decision? you made and perhaps in a way that might distinguish you from some of your other Republican colleagues? I, I don't want to say that. I hope that my faith plays a role. But I, a lot of my colleagues uh, uh, you know, have strong faith as well um, that, that don't share my faith. But, uh, so I wouldn't say that. But I, I want to believe, I sure hope that my faith uh, um, influences my politics. Um, Let's, just one last question about, well, maybe not the last question about Trump, but just, have you seen a politician like this? No. Or is even a politician <laughs> the right word? I mean, in Australia, you know, we're, we're, we're 10,000 miles away, basically, from DC, and we do a ton of media, and one thing I refuse to do is try and psychoanalyze the President of the United States from 10,000 miles away. Um, not what I was trying, not my, was what my PhD is in. Um, but... You know, the, 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 the use of Twitter, the, 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 his use of language, this extremely sort of 
basic form of words. Um, the, the idea is settled in the word perfect to describe that call and just hits it and hits it. That, that mm -hmm. you know, I guess you might conventionally call that message discipline. I don't know, but, but just as, as, a, as someone, you know, you ran and won a lot of elections. Um, just as a communicator, as a presence, as a political operator, had, have you got a theory of the case, as it were, as to, as to, as to Trump and, and how he resonates with the base and his operating model? Yeah. I don't. <laughs> I, I, I just, I mean, my basic overlying theory is he had no idea he would be where he is today. Okay. I, I can maintain, and, and I think there's a lot of anecdotal and some you know, evidence uh, from statements made that, that he never thought as late as Election Day that, right. that day in November that he would be president. Uh, right. I don't think that he wrote a big acceptance speech. Um, he uh, and he, he got thrown into this, and he's uh, you know done what he does, and it's he has a pretty good antenna yeah. as as it pertains to how the use of media, particularly new social media, mm -hmm. and uh, um, and a way to shore up and appeal to a base. Mm -hmm. um, who ever thought that when he first started to run that his biggest constituency or most firm constituency would be evangelical Christians. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I, so that just uh, is beyond me. And but but it is. And and he is he's been masterful at that. Do you have a theory about that? Why that's the case? Um, I mean, they believe that uh, he stands with them, no matter how offensive he is in his private life. He is with them, and he will fight. And they, uh, you know, I don't agree with that, but that's, that's the feeling that they have. Those judicial appointments, perhaps, in particular. <laughs> oh, certainly. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, uh, but it, even without that, um, he's fighting for them. But, I, but keep in mind that in November of this year, we all, I think, are likely to, or have a possibility that we'll all say, man, what a horrible politician he was. Um, or... I mean, he had a great economy. <laughs> he had right. everything that would guarantee re-election re for an incumbent, and yet he blew it. Yeah. And so, I, I, you know, I, I'm not accepting that uh, we'll all be claiming his political genius, uh, you know, 10 months from now. But, uh, but he might squeak it through. And, and I think that, that really almost all depends on who is nominated on the yeah. side. And, and so just... To put a line under that, the only way you see him winning is kind of a repeat of losing the popular vote but winning the electoral... You don't see any scenario in which he wins the popular vote. He, he threads the electoral college needle again. Is that, is that the scenario? I think that's... And, uh, I mean, unless, with, unless with, it's with, a... Yeah, yeah with, with, with Bernie, it blowout, could yeah. be that... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. that's a completely okay. different scenario, but yes. Um, last little section from me. I just want to flip it. Um, I was doing a bit of research today, and there's a there's a out there on the internet. There's a claim that you voted with Trump's positions 84 percent of the time, <laughs> which is actually um, pretty low as these things go. But 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 that leads me to ask: so what is it about that the administration has done that you might actually agree with? Uh -huh. That that okay. you think where and in particular this might get us into the, into the domain of foreign policy. Um, 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 for us here in Australia, those of us that you know study the relationship quite closely, um, Trump, we the, 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 we may not agree with the method, but he's the first U.S. president that's rattled China's cage. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. ever yeah. <laughs> since Nixon, right, right. Um, basically. Um, and so I'm just sort of interested in that other arc. We've got the domestic side, but his foreign policy, or at least elements of it, are there points where you right. look at what the administration, if not Trump per se, but the administration go, okay, the strategic direction there is something you might agree with? Well, first on voting record, voting 84% of the time, keeping in mind that in particular the contemporary Senate, yep. um, virtually every vote you take is a procedural vote right. to keep the place running. Right, right, right. 84% is a pretty, that's, yep. that's dissident stuff. That's right. I mean, that's, that's right. uh, um, yeah. and I, and I, I hear people like say that. I spent my last uh, two and a half months in the Senate holding up 40 yeah. judicial nominees yep. where I had leverage to do that. I. I usually did if it was trying to accomplish something. Right. But, uh, but I, I'm a conservative Republican. I have felt for a long time that uh, we needed more balance in our judiciary and have cheered and participated in and helped uh, move through uh, conservative judges. Now, I, I happen to think that the Republican Senate and Mitch McConnell uh, was unfair uh, to obviously Merrick Garland and other nominees and slow walked a lot mm -hmm. of uh, Mm -hmm. uh, President Obama's nominees, and I actually worked the last couple of months just while the election was going on to try to ensure that Merrick Garland, if we got to the lame duck after Hillary Clinton was going to right. be the victor, right. that we could move him then? through. <laughs> um, but so I, you know, conceding that, I, I think that uh, that is something the president has done, and the, one of the smart things he's done is basically outsourcing that to groups that know better. He doesn't know these federal judges. He doesn't, he doesn't know what philosophy, you know, jurisprudence or anything is. And so that's been good. And frankly, it's been a good outcome. And I think that the fact that the economy has been strong is largely because, one, a better tax environment, certainly lifting the or, uh, corporate tax cuts have, have helped, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but, but also uh, just a more sure regulatory environment and knowing that there are going to be more conservative judges to have a better balance because uh, among businesses out there that realize it's for the last several years the uncertainty of the regulatory environment was a real drag. So I do think that that's been good. And then uh, internationally, uh, certainly rattling China's cages, we have desperately needed somebody to stand up and say, hey, this intellectual property theft, mm -hmm. uh, this investment you know, restrictions and whatnot, Mm -hmm. To stand on that, my only beef is you do that with your allies beside you, yeah. not impose tariffs on them and then go it alone against China. Yeah. Um, that, this, this really was an opportunity. And the president did have a real opportunity. I mean, there's, I wrote in the book um, about you know, Richard Nixon and his madman theory, <laughs> where you gain strategic advantage right. over your international opponents uh, by appearing to be off kilter. Yep. The problem is <laughs> you have to have some underlying strategy there right. um, or, or you're just a madman. <laughs> and, uh, and for the life of me, I've not been able to detect any underlying strategy <laughs> to just about any of our, you know, the president's pushes on security or trade issues. Hmm. Um, that's more than enough for me. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to um, open it up um, to the audience at this point, we do have a microphone. We've got two microphones, and um, questions, not speeches, um, are always appreciated. But, but please, this is a, a, a rare opportunity, ladies and gentlemen. Fire away, please. 
in this venue, when people get a microphone, do they sing? Or, <laughs> or, or uh, that's what I'd like to see. Play a cello, typically, in this room, but yeah, yeah. Thank you for your remarks, Senator. Uh, you touched on several occasions the question of judicial nominations going back to Bork and Thomas and the like. And some of us are old enough to remember when uh, confirmation hearings took a day or two and went through basically on a majority, almost a unanimous yep. vote. The proposition I would like you to comment on is this. Uh, Hyperpartisanship in the United States will never be resolved until Roe versus Wade is de-weaponized. Um, I, I mean, that, that will always, I think the abortion issue will always be with us and, and will always be uh, um, a point of vast disagreement. But I, so I, I don't think that that being uh, decided one way or the other will lessen uh, the politics. It's, it's frankly may have been the middle point that has allowed as much bipartisanship as we've seen over the past 30 years or 40 years is I just don't see any way you decide that from the governmental level as lessening the partisanship or the disagreement. So I'm, I'm not sure on that. I'm not sure if that helps us. Question just here. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. That was great. Um, going back to the Democratic candidates, who do you think will be chosen, and do you have any comments about Bloomberg? <laughs> Um, <laughs> I have no, no, uh, no I mean, I, I know most of them, uh, and uh, it's, it's very interesting to see them on the campaign stage. We enjoy the debates, Cheryl and me, a lot. Uh, but uh, I, I do think there is a lot of polling more recently over the past month and weeks that suggests that, that Democrats are increasingly valuing someone <laughs> who they feel will remove the current occupant in the White House, and valuing that more than having someone with whom they agree on more issues. That suggests that, uh, and I think that that's the reason that Joe Biden continues to remain where he is, where under normal stances, circumstances he might not. An older candidate who has issues and has run several times but he's strong, and I think because people see him as somebody who could be there. And, and I happen to think, I mean, I served with Joe Biden. He's a good man, and I think people see that as well. Um, so I, I do think it's going to be uh, somebody who is from the more mainstream of the party. Mike Bloomberg, it's difficult for me to see how the party, where the energy is in the Democratic Party, how somebody who was just a Republican not long ago and, uh, and jumps in now and ignores the early primaries and hasn't paid his price if he could be the nominee. But having said that, we've never had anybody who's pledged to spend a billion or more. And that does make a difference. And um, he, uh, I, I know that he was going to get in before Joe Biden did. Joe Biden is a friend of his. Um, I think he would be perfectly fine if Joe Biden was the nominee and he felt that Joe Biden could move all the way through. So I, I, I don't think you'll see Bloomberg going after Biden or a traditional nominee who he believes can beat Donald Trump. But he will go in, Mike Bloomberg, go into the uh, 
convention with a considerable number of delegates, and he will be a kingmaker if nothing else. Hmm. Uh, it's not inconceivable that he could make a convention play where he would be on top. Um, there was a, a good article just a, a few days ago uh, pointing out something that I hadn't fully thought of, but how when you spend, uh, we've never had anybody willing to spend a billion or two, but, but what that does to the, you know, the lower ballot or others on the ballot and how oh. a lot of marginal uh, races around the country, right. um, somebody running in Arizona in a, in a marginal seat if Mike Bloomberg, they know that there's going to be a couple billion dollars spent and a lot of it on their behalf or money that would help propel them uh, further. And it may make them more likely to come out and support or endorse Mike Bloomberg hmm. or support him in the convention. So they're, they're, it's, a, it's a more interesting play than I think most of us have considered just because of that money angle. That's a big deal. Um, I, I I would like to see him as president, Mike Bloomberg. He did a good job in, uh, in New York. And, you know, for me as a Republican, <laughs> you know, you're just wanting somebody else. Uh, somebody who is... <laughs> uh, I shouldn't say it like that. But, but, but uh, I guess you just want to say that you lower the bar. But, uh, but no, uh, Bloomberg is a good man. And so is, is and Amy Klobuchar is a good friend I've worked with her a lot. She'd be a good president or vice president. Um, and you'll, you know, that's yet to come, all the negotiations that are going to be going on. But we'll be watching this with great oh, fascination. Yeah. Yep. Over, over here, please. And how's this side of the room? No. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Senator, that was a marvellous address. Thank you very much. And very inspiring to hear your uh, recounting of the uh, stories at the... Um, uh, at, at the baseball game and also with your Senate colleague. Um, in a few weeks' time, young Australians all over the country will return to school. By that, I mean primary and secondary school. Uh, whilst there'll be many concerns they have, I'm sure that uppermost in their mind will not be the fear mm -hmm. that they may be the victims of a madman who, with a semi-automatic uh, weapon, who'll come in and take them out and their, and their classmates. However, later in the year, when your students in your country return to school after their summer break, I'm sure that that would have to be part of their thinking, will we be the next victims? Mm -hmm. Now, in our case, of course, we had John Howard and his action in ensuring that semi-automatic weapons were banned. But tell me, how is it that in the United States you can continue, your country can continue to ignore the concerns of young people on this issue? Well, it, it is a, a sobering thought. And when you've been on the other end of the, the gunfire, it does tend to have an impact. Uh, long before the shooting that I was involved with, um, I had supported measures that had drawn the ire of the, the NRA. I was unlikely to have had their support in the next election because I had co-sponsored legislation with Dianne Feinstein um, on uh, you know, um, fly or buy um, and uh, uh, the age of those who could purchase uh, um, you know, so-called assault weapons or others. And, uh, 
so I've, I've long felt that there, there ought to be more restrictions, even though I grew up on a ranch, um, and uh, tend to still favor, as the culture in the United States is, the, the right to bear arms. There are things that we can do, but it, it has largely been because of the strength of the NRA and that lobby. Uh, it's made it difficult for Republicans to, to uh, you know, take another position. But, uh, but that will end, um, and I do think, and I would expect over the next couple of years, particularly if Mike Bloomberg has any uh, say in the matter, um, uh, you, you'll see some, I think, uh, moves that will be good for the country, um, good for all of us. Over here, thank you. Senator, thank you very much for your, um, I'm going to say, stunning remarks earlier on. Um, as, a, as a long time not conservative voter, you've restored my faith in reasonable and passionate conservatism. <laughs> um, on that note, you mentioned earlier the door's not closed on, um, on politics for you. And uh, we all know what the obvious next step is from former senators. <laughs> what, um, Retirement. <laughs> there's that one. And then there's the other one. Um, what might the circumstances be in which you would consider running for the presidency yourself? If Cheryl could exit the room for a minute. <laughs> um, you know, Cheryl does count our time out of office now in the you know, weeks, then months, now a year without serious death threats. And so that is a, that is a plus. Um, but uh, I, you, know, you, you never say never. I still consider myself young <laughs> um, in this regard. And uh, they do say every senator or former senator looks in the mirror and sees the president. I don't think that's always the case. Uh, but uh, but it uh, have to see how things align because right now I don't have a constituency. Um, I don't think that'll always be the case, but we'll have to wait and see. A definite maiden. <laughs> uh, can we get? Thank you. Senator, thank you. Uh, really inspiring comments. Uh, you laid out a proposition uh, that the only way that you see the Republican Party realigning with some of the core values that you articulated is through getting, this is an American term, shellacked in the next election. Um, I'm curious to hear your thinking about an alternative proposal. Uh, you had laid out that looking forward to your reelection, that the numbers weren't there, that the president would probably run a primary opponent against you. What would it look like alternatively? if people like you, principled, decide to actually fight that primary fight and articulate what you have just articulated from the stage to the Republican primary voters? Well, I think right now, um, when the president <coughs> talks about having 95% support, he claims, mm -hmm. from Republicans, that's a bit misleading because fewer people self-identify as Republicans now. But I can tell you he's not far off. Uh, and what has surprised me, it, it didn't surprise me that uh, a lot of Republicans in the last election um, just in the end pulled the lever for the president. Most of them will say they plugged their nose and said Supreme Court, Supreme Court, Supreme right, Court. Right. Um, and I understand that, that impulse. What has shocked me uh, and I'm still puzzled by is how many of those who were very reluctant Trump voters have come around and are fully behind him now. And it is because of his skill in mm -hmm. playing to that base and making it an us versus them. And the other side 
is far worse, and they're out to get you. He has been successful in that. So I, I don't think that in this cycle uh, that that is that that would be a successful strategy. I think virtually anybody anywhere in the country uh, trying to make the case that I've made before Republican primary voters, remember this is a subset of a subset of a subset, but they're the ones that determine who gets through a primary. But I don't think that will always be the case, and I think rather quickly uh, you'll see a change, particularly in not people running uh, statewide, um, you know, congressional districts is a little more difficult, but right, statewide right. in Arizona, you know, after a couple of rounds now, you'll have Republicans who, you know, catered in the primary to the president and then tried to win statewide and couldn't. Uh, I think you'll have people, maybe former Republicans or others, saying, I'm going to stand as an independent. And, and depending on what happens with the Democrats, uh, then that could be a tenable position. But, uh, I, and I do think that, that that is a possibility in the future, but not right now. So uh, a Lisa Murkowski sort of, another state that begins and ends with a, where there's sort of enough, I mean, I mean are, are you articulating something, it sounds to me very Arizona specific. Um, like a, not, like, not necessarily, but not, I mean, let's face it, Alaska is a different, <laughs> different animal completely. Right, right. Um, and just the, the, the small uh, number there that Lisa Murkowski was able to win a write-in yeah. election with the last name Murkowski. It's a little difficult to spell yeah, yeah, even yeah, because yeah. people know and her father was a governor and uh, you know it's a it's a different yeah. uh, different place. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you Senator very much. If, if um, they don't if the Democrats don't nominate uh, Bernie don't nominate Elizabeth but a centrist Democrat and let's say you formed Republicans for the centrist mm -hmm. but what would be your private advice to that candidate as to what they need to do, how to attack Trump to win. What mm -hmm. issues, what tactics, so that what happened to Hillary doesn't happen to them? Great question. Uh, one, obviously, uh, make the, the decency argument that, that, that people, some have articulated already, we, America is better than this. Uh, we just, we don't need to go there. And, and two, just do not, uh, one, acknowledge that the economy is in a better place than it was a few years ago. Now, President Trump takes far too much credit. Uh, this economy was trending this way, and we had, you know, uh, dozens of months of consecutive growth that he doesn't want to admit before he came in. Right. But the economy is doing well now. Um, stock market is at all times high, and I don't think that Democrats will get too much currency or people in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or other votes they need by trying to claim the economy is not good. Uh, make the case on other issues as well and, and play the long game as well. There are issues that we need to work together on. I think fundamentally, the broader group, maybe not the subset of a subset of a subset that I'm talking about, but the broader group that, you know, those people whose votes you need that are in that independent category, that's who you want to reach. And they are the ones that are repelled by the current crude, crass, vulgar politics. And uh, so I, I think that uh, appeal to them don't, and, and understand, I think, that, uh, that Democrats on the far left, there's enough motivation for them to come out <laughs> to remove the president from the, from the White House. 
don't try to appeal to that. That may just sound like a Republican in my wish, but I, I do think that that would help. Senator, um, are there a set of circumstances where you would be campaigning for a de Democratic candidate? Sure. And yeah. what would those be? Well, if it's a, a candidate that uh, I, I will not vote for President Trump. <laughs> Fortunately, there's always a third party candidate on the ballot or <laughs> something where you can not do that. But, uh, but I, I would like to enthusiastically support a Democrat um, uh, because I, I think that uh, if me and like-minded Republicans can get behind a mainstream Democrat who appeals to a broad electorate, that increases his chances. So I'd like to. This will be our last question. Thank you for your comment, Senator. Um, you commented about populism in the US. I was wondering if you'd like to comment on the phenomenon of populism around the globe in other constituencies and other countries. And is it, uni is it unique to each country or are, do you think there are some themes that we need to be concerned about and addressing globally around the issue of populism? I do, there, there are some certain themes and Simon's probably better positioned to answer this question than I am, but there are certain themes, certainly, and in, in, in trade um, and the perceived unfairness um, or uh, inequality of, of benefits uh, there. And, uh, and I think there is justifiably. I mean, we have a great, not great, but we have a good uh, framework that the United States and Australia and other countries have been the architects of that have led to untold prosperity, but not everybody has uh, has realized the benefits of it. And some countries, particularly China, have taken advantage of it and not complied. Uh, so certainly a, a, a willingness or a, a serious effort to enforce trade agreements um, in a way that benefits uh, people more. Um, and then uh, just, the, the, uh, that, that's the most common, I think, thing across countries. But every country is uh, different in terms of, uh, uh, of some of the issues that drive the politics there. I would say with Europe, uh, immigration and dealing with that in a responsible way, but that also has to deal with the root causes of some of it, which is unrest in the Middle East, which driving immigration that affects the politics in a lot of these countries. Uh, those, those things need to be addressed, sometimes in a regional and sometimes uh, uh, in a broader context. But I think doing so would help uh, the issue because uh, this, this populist um, you know, strain that we're seeing now, uh, like I said, in the end, it's, it's not a governing philosophy. It spends itself out at some point, but it wreaks havoc in the meantime. And I have to confess, the, the fix was in with this, with this visit. Um, um, the, the CEO of the Perth US Asia Center is, is Gordon Flake and, um, and, is, and is Jeff's cousin. And, and um, I serve on, on Gordon's board, Gordon serves on my board, and we thought it would be a fitting way to end the evening if, if Gordon would uh, offer a vote of thanks uh, to his cousin. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, Simon. The real story of the fix is that for six years I tried to get uh, Senator Flake to come down, and I was unsuccessful until Cheryl Flake, his wife, finally got control of his schedule. So the real credit doesn't go to me, it goes to Cheryl. So thank you so much for that. Um, the, 
many of you know the relationship between the Perth US Asia Center and the United States Studies Center is one of sister centers. We share DNA. We're both benefited tremendously in our creation and our existence from the leadership of the American Australian Association. And to enable that, as Simon mentioned, I have the great honor of serving on, on the USSC board and, and benefit tremendously from Simon's wisdom serving on our board. So to be able to collaborate on this has been wonderful. Our name indicates that our focus is much more on, on the regions. Australia, with its tremendous connectivity in the world, is no longer well described as antipodes. However, Perth is the actual antipodes of Washington, D.C. In other words, you cannot get further on the planet on land away from Washington. In that, in, in that effort, we benefit so tremendously from our relationship from the United States Studies Center. As their, their, their tagline goes, analysis of America, insights for Australia. And that extends to Western Australia. And, and every year, our, our cooperation is vibrant. This year, it will be more vibrant still as we depend upon the tremendous research and programs and analysis done here at the United States Studies Center to inform not just the public in Western Australia, but the, the broader region on the implications of these politics here. And in that effort, it really has been a tremendous collaboration to bring Senator Flake and Cheryl Flake down here uh, to, to share their insights. Uh, the senator and his wife had a full week in Western Australia. If they had been there one more day, I'm convinced that the senator would have been dragooned into public service and elected in Western Australia. So we got him here just in time. Um, uh, I've also learned uh, to, to somewhat of my humility, my, my staff, as they've been doing social media for the last week, have got a new hashtag, which is Flake in Oz. And my reaction was, well, what am I, chopped liver kind of thing, right? <laughs> but it's clear uh, from the wonderful audience here before Australia Day and the great audiences we had in Perth that Australia is hungry for an upgraded flake. And so uh, in that regard, we really couldn't have been more fortunate than to have uh, the humility, the grace, the insights, uh, and the forward-looking uh, both vision and temperament of Senator Flake uh, and I'd like you to please join me once again in thanking our host, the United States Studies Center, and Senator Jeffrey Flake. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.